The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I have no disagreement with the courts that every child has the right to know their origins. Every child has the right to know who gave birth to them. I just disagree that that person is, by definition, a mother. We have so many different definitions of mother in this society. Um, I don't understand why the legal definition has not been kept up to date with the social reality of what that word means. I think it undermines parental relationships between mothers who didn't give birth and their children. I don't think this is just an issue that affects trans men who give birth by any means. I think it's really worrying reflection of how outdated and discriminatory the courts, the legal system is. Hello listeners, it's Yasmin here and welcome to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. We're looking ahead to Pride Month and I'm talking to Freddie McConnell, who is a trans man, because very often when we talk about Pride Month, we hear about the L, we hear about the G, not so much the B and even less about the T. And even within that community, less about trans men. And Freddie will talk about his story um, and also talk about fatherhood as well and his court case. I think the insight that you're going to gain from this interview is that this is a nuanced and tricky issue and the law has to grapple with these issues when it comes to trans men and women and parenthood because there are a lot of inconsistencies. Freddie is a man for some legal purposes and a woman for others. So it's going to make you think, it may may challenge your thinking, but be ready to learn, be open to listening and you're going to enjoy this episode. I'm sure you are, because I certainly enjoyed talking to Freddie, who was fascinating, he was funny and fiercely bright. The Hearing. Okay, Freddie, um, welcome to The Hearing Podcast. Um, I'm so pleased you've joined us because, as I said to you, I watched the film Seahorse, um, I think it was about a year ago now, and it's about your journey into parenthood, and I was deeply moved by it. Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about the film and why you chose to make that film? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, wow. I think it was at least, it might have been two years ago. You know? it's, uh, yeah. it's been a long journey, and, uh, and the filming itself was over three years almost. Um, and it started by me um i wanted to tell the story that i knew i was gonna go through or, or share the experience that i knew i was gonna go through i'm a journalist and a video journalist and I, I understand the power of documentary to create empathy and um, make it feel as though you're sort of spending time with someone and i think that's so important when it comes to marginalized communities um where you know the vast majority of the population simply never gets to meet someone like me um or another trans person, you know, who's who's been through stuff. And I think especially at this time, with the way we see the media talking about trans people, how negative it tends to be, it's just so important to actually hear from us in a, in a deep and meaningful way. At the same time, I knew I didn't want to make the film myself, like a solo project. I wanted it to be bigger than that. Um, and I wanted it to feel like a proper film, sort of I'm, I'm using, I'm doing quote fingers because, you know, <laughs> I just, I just wanted it to sort of look beautiful and sound beautiful and to be this immersive experience, which I think it was. Mm. So I, I, I set about um, finding 
people to collaborate with. And um, I worked with a brilliant documentary maker, director called Jeannie Finley. And it was produced in collaboration with The Guardian, which is where I was working at the time. And um, so, so at that point, once, once we'd sort of, we became a team, I like stepped right back and just focused on what I was doing, which was like trying to start my family and conceive. And I was attending a fertility clinic and I sort of left it to Jeannie to find a way to tell the story and to, and to pick out the story that she wanted to tell. Um, and I, as an artist, I really trusted her, you know, I trusted her as an artist to have a really strong sense of how she wanted to do that. And I knew that it would work best if I, um, sort of tried not to get too involved. And then that would also help me mentally sort of focus on the, the real difficulties of, of what I was going through, not being on testosterone and, mm. you know, going, walking into the unknown of being pregnant. Um, so yeah, and we, we kept it quite secret and Jeannie would come down as we spent lots of time together, obviously. It was also lots of times we didn't see each other. It was, as I said, it was like a three year process. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it unfolded. Mm. And and what did you want your audience to think about after having seen the film? What were the, some of the messages that you thought were important? So for me, the messages fell into two quite distinct categories. I wanted the film to be seen by trans people, by trans men and non-binary people, especially um, assigned female at birth because simply on the most basic level, because we are still being misinformed routinely about our reproductive choices. We are told often by people working for the NHS that physical transition will make us infertile. Um, we're not really told why that is. I think sometimes it's implied that testosterone itself affects your fertility and other times there's just this assumption that once you go on to testosterone and transition, there it's a linear path and there's no um, pausing and there's no there's no alternative routes to take it's just that's it forever now so I it, it sort of upsets me whenever I think about it to think that that is still happening and that people especially young people are being robbed of that information and, and made to feel as though they have no options for having biological children it's either you know they're almost like a choice between family or transition and I know in my experience that I for me the two had to come together in order for me to be strong and stable and in a position to start a family i had to transition first uh, mm. i know of older trans people who who had a hysterectomy without knowing that they could have had a child and who had to mourn that and i just think that's absolutely scandalous so that was the one thing it was just sort of public information wanting to get it out there and then on the other side i guess i wanted audiences to to empathize um, and to take away from the film the universal elements. And obviously that wasn't a case of sort of uh, skirting around the issue that I'm trans. And I know a lot of people come to the film with that sense of curiosity and that's fine by me. Like, mm. you know, that doesn't, that doesn't really bother me. I just hope that they would come away with more than they were expecting going in. Mm. And I mean, we, you're right. We don't really hear much about trans men. A lot of the narrative and and the toxic debate I think is about trans women um, and so it was refreshing actually to see a film about your experiences and, and the issue of fertility because again that's not really covered much um, I guess because you're a journalist as well you did you feel a, a greater sense of duty to to get this story in the way you know you wanted to tell it 
hundred percent. I I felt like if someone is going to do this, and I think it would be helpful if someone did do this, then I'm in a good position to try and make sure it's done in a way that's not exploitative, because that's the other thing. You know, a lot of the time when trans people try to tell our stories, um, we or, or even when we try to tell other people's stories, you know, in the position of like a producer or a journalist. Um, we have very little power. Um, I mean, I know what a, a friend of mine um, agreed to work with a producer in a totally different context um, in the US, and that producer filmed the birth um, of my friend and then disappeared. And, that, and so he never got to see that footage or have that footage. And so the exploitation is real and it's dangerous and it's, it's, it needs to stop. So I wanted to show that you could make a film about an experience like mine without it being exploitative and without anyone coming away being hurt by it. Um, and yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, experiences of trans masculine people are erased, um, in a, in a very sort of, you know, in a way that mirrors misogyny, um, in, in ways that are not particularly surprising because of the way we are perceived and the way we're talked about in the mainstream media, um, in ways that are very sort of demeaning and belittling. So I actually feel like even though Seahorse, the film is now out there, we still have a hell of a way to go to redress that balance from the focus um, on trans women, which is, you know, a positive focus on trans women would be would be wonderful. But at the moment, it's, it's rarely positive and it's so, so detrimental to that community. Mm. Well, I want to turn to your court case because this is a legal podcast and um one of the many reasons I wanted to get you on to the hearing is to talk about this legal case that you brought. Um, and it was about your child's birth certificate. Do you want to tell our listeners what that case was about? And, and again, why did you choose to bring this case? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess like just for clarity, it's probably helpful to say that the case isn't featured in the film and the film so that the, there's sort of two really quite separate things. And that yeah. was also a deliberate choice. Um, the case was something that arose out of my discovery of the reality of the situation for trans people who have children in the UK, um, specifically what happens to trans men who give birth after they've transitioned or, you know, while they're transitioning, uh, in my case, even after they have a gender recognition certificate, which you know, says that for all purposes, I am male legally, and there's no requirement of surgery or any other kind of medical intervention in order to get that certificate. So there's no, there's no sense in which I have, you know, been dishonest or anything like that. I, that, that is just my correctly acquired legal identity, as it were. So, mm. but then I discovered just through online community, um, there's no kind of official advice about this, because I think there's still this uh, assumption in the legal world and the political world that trans people like don't have full lives and we don't have families and none of this stuff really applies to us but within community i'd found out that trans uh, people who give birth no matter who you are if you give birth you have to register as the mother um and that's actually a law or a rule it's not it's sort of common law right so it's not written down anywhere but that came about in order to um protect supposedly again in quote marks surrogates um, so it took away the ability of a surrogate to not go to, to choose to not be registered as the mother. They have to be registered as a mother. And then, um, trans men fall into that category without any 
thought or awareness that we do or that we exist um, mm. as people who give birth. So that horrified me and shocked me. Um, I didn't, I was very surprised. I thought with my GRC that, you know, I could register as the father or maybe there'd be some way to register as parent. And I just felt that again, similar to Seahorse, I was in a position, I, I knew I could sort of try and find a lawyer who specialized in family law, um, you know, through, through a colleague, basically I, I asked for a recommendation and then that's how it happened. I got speaking to someone and I had this great team suddenly sort of offering to represent me. And I thought, well, again, someone has to do this. And I feel like I have the capacity, uh, I'm strong enough and um, I have definitely a deep sense of how unjust this is. So I'm going to do it. And then I, when my kid grows up, I can say to him, well, if we win, then I can say, wasn't this great that we achieved this? And if we lose, I can say, well, I tried everything I could and I'm sorry, but the world like wasn't ready um, to understand, but I tried. Because mm. I guess the, the, the judgment, it flies in the face of your actual family life. Obviously, the, the way that you relate to your son is father and son relationship. And the judgment, um, I mean, they said that the person who gives birth and carries the child is the mother, even though, as you say, in every other piece of legislation, not to do with parenting, you are recognised as the the legal, um, as, as legally male. So um, there, there seems to be a, a contradiction there for sure. Um, yeah. So you spoke about your son just now. What, what will you tell him about um, the case when he's older? What would you like him to know about it? Just that um, you, you did your best and, and are there any other things that you would tell him? Uh, I, I, I think... Uh... I would tell him everything. I don't think there's anything. Um, it would depend on what he asked me. It depends how interested he is. <laughs> Something I have learned from other trans dads who've given birth or who haven't is that you can never predict what your kid's going to be interested in or care about. <laughs> and sometimes it can be difficult and they can um, ask lots of questions or it can be difficult because they str they're struggling with something or it can be surprising because they just don't seem to care at all. <laughs> so yeah. I will, um, yeah, I'll tell him anything he asked me about and, and I'll try to remember and hopefully, you know, we might still be in touch with the team because he um, has his own legal team. He's represented separately to me. Um, right. Should our interests ever diver yeah, diverge, um, mm. you know, that's just a standard thing that when you have that in family law and family cases, so, you know, all those people that have worked to help us. And uh, I mean, that's what kind of blows me away still. I feel so grateful to have been able to work with these brilliant lawyers and the compassionate people who've just given so much time to mm -hmm. this case, um, you know, who've never met my son, but who worked for him and for us, you know, because yeah, I think often it's overlooked in the media coverage that this is really about his rights as much, if not more than right. This is about his future and his documents and his identity. Um, and you're right, you know, like you say, his his social reality, his his reality, you know, uh, which at the moment cannot be reflected in in his documents, which will cause issues in future and undermines who we are as a family in a way that's totally discriminatory. When we, mm. when we bought the case, the government um, acknowledged that my 
my rights um, and our rights as a family were engaged, um, they found that the um, the extent to which they were engaged was proportionate. Um, so there was no question of whether it was a problem. It was just whether the problem was sort of justifiable, which they decided it was. But in the judgment, the president of the family division said, you know, acknowledge that I am my child's father in, in the everyday sense. Um, and he also recommended that the government review the law in this arena. It was basically a judgment that said, this is a political, this, there needs yeah. to be a political solution to this, not a legal one. Yeah, interesting. And I know you've just said, you know, the reality is you are your son's dad. Um, and it's interesting that the court um, struggled with that in some way because I'm quoting from the Court of Appeal here they said every child should be able to discover who their mother was and they thought the child's best interest you talk about your child's best interest is acknowledging the reality of the situation what your relationship is at the moment um, or what it is now and and they said the best interest they disagreed that is is for the child to know its mother um, what, what do you make of that do you have any thoughts around that? That they've obviously got a different interpretation of the child's best interests. Well, they have and they haven't, right? Like, because actually we totally agree. It's 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 the language they use, which mm. I found throughout was shockingly normative in terms of not being able to see beyond um, the nuclear family, not being able to unlink words that we have like mother and father from roles like biological roles like giving birth or providing your sperm um and yet our birth registration system provides many many instances in which that happens you know the hfea 20 uh, 2008 provides for um, a man who isn't trans who doesn't whose sperm is not involved in the conception of his child to be registered as the father um that, that's that's the example that, that comes to me but you know that there are lots of other ways in which our birth registration system has been amended and sort of things have been bolted on in quite a haphazard and sometimes seemingly illogical way to sort of accommodate other kinds of families so we we i have no um disagreement with the courts that every child has the right to know their origins every child has the right to know who gave birth to them i just disagree that that person is by definition a mother mm. we have so many different definitions of mother in this society um i don't understand why the legal definition has not been kept up to date with the social reality of what that word means in everyday mm. use um i think it undermines parental relationships between mothers who didn't give birth and their children. I don't mm. think this is just an issue that affects trans men who give birth by any means. I think it's really worrying reflection of how outdated and, um, yeah, and discriminatory the courts, the legal system is. They, they just cannot, they cannot see that the person who gives birth isn't necessarily the mother and in other lots of other countries that are similar to ours, um, that's been, you know, enshrined in law and clarified in law for a long time. I, mm. I didn't expect that to be the bit where the, the, the thing they got stuck on, because that's just to me like so easy. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. that statement that you just made, a lot of people will try and get their heads around that. Just that you said, 
you know, they didn't understand that the person who gives birth is not always the mother. Some mm -hmm. people will, will struggle even with that sentence. And I think, I think you're right that perhaps society hasn't caught up with the realities of um, how people live their lives and particularly mm -hmm. trans people having full lives, having family lives. And the law doesn't seem to reflect that. It's funny because like to me, to me, it's so it's so far from being a trans thing because I mm. obviously I, I move around, I suppose, in queer circles and I'm part of LGBTQ communities. So I'm thinking of adoption and I'm thinking of surrogacy and I'm thinking of uh, lesbian couples. And I think all of those people are mothers. Um, so the mm. idea that the person who gives birth isn't necessarily the mother or that the person who doesn't give birth might be the mother. That to me just seems like such an uncontroversial statement mm. in 2021. Um, but I, that's not to say I, I don't understand. I can see that someone might not have thought about it before, but I, I would hope that if they thought about it just for a little bit, they would see mm. um, they would see the truth in it. Yeah, I guess for you, and, and I, I move in disabled circles, you see. Mm -hmm. And um, so... For me, the reality of people's lives in the disabled community, having children of it, that's normal for me. But for people who perhaps don't have uh, a friend who's trans or a friend who's disabled or mix in those circles, they struggle to get their head around these concepts. Um, mm. and, and it's what they read about, I guess, um, is influences how they think about people rather than mixing with people, experiencing the world as, as other people experience it and talking to people. Um, yeah. So I, th I think there's a gap there of knowledge, isn't there? Definitely. It's a lack of representation, a lack of exposure, especially also because when you have people in um, sort of heterosexual relationships who go through fertility treatment or who perhaps go through something like surrogacy or adoption, there's still the shame and secrecy attached to it. And in my world, <laughs> you know, in my reality, people talk very proudly about those things. And I wish... Mm. So it's so you can you can definitely come away with the feeling that like oh well you know everyone that gives birth is a mother and everyone um, and that's how families are created and the reality is just so so much more complicated and beautifully diverse than that mm. um, but yeah it, but you know, it's it's easy to not be aware of that yeah so what's the next steps for the legal case it went to the court of appeal and they agreed with the high court didn't they. Um, are you taking it to the European Court of Human Rights? Yes, we are. We are still within the period of time before the sort of deadline for submitting the claim. Mm. So, so nothing, nothing's been submitted to the ECHR yet. That, that's the first step. And then I think you get a bit more time to submit more documents and sort of flesh out your arguments. Mm. Um, there is actually several other cases very similar to mine also either at the ECHR or heading there one in one from Russia one from Germany another from France I think and there was one in Sweden um Sweden's the first country in Europe where trans men who give birth are registered as father um and that was won by a chap uh, a few years ago that's pretty progressive they seem to be progressive about everything though don't they um well <laughs> or, or not <laughs> I think that's the perception. I don't think it's the reality. I think right. um, Sweden was one of the last places to require trans people to be sterilized before um, before getting gender recognition. And I know Sweden has that has it's quite a paternalistic society, I think, in, in many ways. Um, 
uh, at least, and I don't think that's just the trans community. Uh, but but what happened there was very similar to the situation here, actually, where they have a law that's similar to our Gender Recognition Act. And, and the court decided that, well, because someone's gender becomes for all purposes that of the acquired gender, that's the wording we have in the UK, then it just it follows that the person, the parent, the parent who is a man is the father. And we sort of thought in the UK, with my case, that that was that would be the same logic they would follow. So it's not that Sweden is like hugely progressive or made a radical decision. They just made the logical decision, <laughs> which I would right. say our courts failed to make or weren't um, sort of weren't brave enough to make, I suppose, even though it would have been um, logical. Mm, mm. And Because when you, sorry, I don't know whether this yeah, is no, good, go but like, for it. like, so the GRA, the Gender Recognition Act, I think it's important to say is quite, is, is very, um, explicit about this it doesn't mention parenting in detail but it doesn't require medical intervention in order to have a gender recognition certificate it actually says that the person say um how can i say this you know it makes explicit the fact that someone who has a grc their sex becomes that of the acquired gender so Mm. i think that's that's the exact wording so they they acknowledge that it's not about the difference between sex and gender. Like that's a distraction. It's not, this isn't a semantic argument. This is like, that's the effect of the law. And that was the intended effect of the law, but they just didn't think trans people were going to have kids. (laughs) They didn't imagine trans people fully enough. This is a classic case of the law catching up with realities of people's lives Mm. and playing catch up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you get any online abuse at all I mean after the court case I think it's pretty um brave and I admire you for taking the case on was there any backlash or um any um abuse that you got I mean uh I I would say the abuse started with the the coverage itself um the extremely cynical and inaccurate way that the case was reported I remember standing in the corridor of the high court um, in one of the old buildings and a court reporter coming up to my barrister um, or one of the barristers on our team. And I was standing right there and I knew that this was a reporter. And he sort of said to the barrister uh, something like, oh, is it, is it correct to say that this, you know, if, if the case is successful, this would be the first child in the UK to, to be registered, their birth to be registered and for there to be no mother put down. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of technically not true because occasionally you have cases of abandoned children where there's no mother recorded. But um, in, a, in a legislative sense, yes, that would be true. And then the headlines came out, first child in the UK with no mother. <laughs> and, mm. and I could see it in the court reporter's face. He was very pleased with himself for having sort of come up with that idea um, and gave no thought to the, the sort of effect of that and ha- how homophobic it is, how missing the point it is, all, all these sorts of things. And I thought, oh God, like that's that's going to be it. Like that's going to be how this is perceived. And it's mm. so far from the truth. And it's it's suggesting that my kid is lacking something um, and he's not. And, and it's erasing the reality that there's hundreds, if not thousands of kids in the UK with who don't have a mom. They just have two dads and, yeah. or they have one dad, you know. So again, it's the it's the paper's, being very similar to the courts in the way that they imagine sort of the realities of modern family. Um, and I don't read the comments and I don't, I didn't ever read that story. I just, I, I heard about the headline and 
I, I I'm sure there is lots of there was lots of terrible commentary, um, but it's all really predictable and just ignore it. I, like I'm a journalist, so I know how meaningless yeah. it is. Yeah, how, that's like, probably quite helpful in some ways. That you really understand. helpful. Yeah, yeah. I've I've made work that has been, and I know. So I know that like even the most positive, innocuous story gets random hate and negativity. So. And I got that for years working in my old job as a, as a video journalist. So, yeah, I'm really sort of inured to it. And um, that's not to say that sometimes the idea of it doesn't get me down, but um, there's also ways you can avoid it, like if you're in your settings on the social media. And so I just make sure that that's all in place. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, I, again, it's interesting when I do see stuff on Twitter, it tends to be um, a kind of weird inverse misogyny. Um, where people who claim to be trying to protect women's sort of quote sex-based rights or you know people who are anti-trans essentially will often attack me in the way in a way that feels quite sexist if they are seeing me as a woman uh, which i think really betrays the reality of their views and and mm. where they're coming from and I often would get called things like narcissist which i think is just a classic insult to throw at someone who you perceive to be a woman <laughs> Yeah. Um, sort of that yeah I saw you waded in um <laughs> I saw on Twitter there's a recent um discussion about chest feeding and breastfeeding was it Janet Street Porter in the mail um mm -hmm. and, and do you want to tell us what you said to her because I think she had quite strong views about um the changing terminology and, and and she was talking about that what did you say well it's just I don't, I don't really feel like I can say what I said without giving the context first, because it's just another yeah, example of how how much of a dumpster fire our media is, especially our tabloid media. You know, the whole story was misreported deliberately, I, I would guess, in most cases, because the guidance itself explicitly went out of its way to try to see off that kind of backlash by including sort of multiple in multiple places. You know, this is not meant to replace any existing language not meant to replace any existing guidelines this is additive that was the word they used it's additive this is for when you are caring for a trans or non-binary parent like they were they were sort of trying to say it basically until they were proverbially blue in the face and nevertheless obviously the daily mail reports it as you know banning the word mother banning breastfeeding blah 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 um janet street porter's uh, headline on her column was something like don't make me sacrifice my breasts you know it's classic janet you know that's what she does it's it's disingenuous it's cynical she doesn't care who she hurts no skin off her nose um she's just having a laugh writing her column and probably getting paid the big bucks so when it's that absurd obviously i want to make sure that the real information is out there which i did um on my own platforms and by sort of giving interviews but um when it's that absurd i think you can only meet it with absurdity um you know so i sort of i take her seriously i say oh good news like don't worry janet like great news turns out you don't have to sacrifice your breasts you know mm -hmm. if you if you if you care to read the guidelines you you'll be you'll be totally reassured and you can just get on with your day like isn't that fantastic nice one you know because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just so it's just so ridiculous and you know we all know how this works right like mm -hmm. um so yeah, I just try to have a bit of fun with it occasionally. Yeah. You know, I won't always do that, but I thought she just made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> what is it you 
you wish people would understand about the trans community? There's a lot of misconceptions out there. What, what is it that you would say, I just wish people would get this? Um, it's always really, it always feels like quite a banal answer to this, right? Because there's no one thing, there's no one misconception that needs debunking or it's much more fundamental than that. We just need to remember that trans people are people and, you know, every person is different. you know when you talk in that way it can become quite meaningless quite quickly so it's but it's really as basic as that anything you hear in the media is probably going to be wrong or at least inaccurate um if you're lucky enough to know a trans person when you read something alarming just remember the real person that you know or that you might have seen in a documentary or heard on a podcast and think think about them and remember that remember that they're real <laughs> and the headline is not. Um, you might not ever get to the truth uh, of, of what the headline is trying to say, but as long as you're feeling empathy for the, for the trans person in your life or for trans people more widely, if that's possible, then, and, and just like give us space in your mind to be complicated, to be as complicated as other people you know, and you know, we're different to a person, we're just human. I think it's important sometimes to acknowledge both as trans people and as non-trans people that it's, you won't ever know what it feels like to be trans. Um, and that's, you just got to sit with that. You just got to accept that. I won't ever know what it feels like to not be trans. Um, it's about having respect for someone regardless because they are a fellow human being. And you know, it's important then in that case, not to fill that gap of, of understanding and being totally able to put yourself in another person's shoes. Try not to fill that with your own projections and your own interpretation of like, well, I felt like this one. So maybe it's now, you know, chances are it's not. <laughs> and um, that can lead to misunderstanding as well. So just, yeah, it, it's sort of, you've got to sit with that discomfort and leave space for complexity and empathy. Brilliant. I think that's a really good answer. And, and so that's for, I guess, the non-trans community. And lastly, I wanted to end with this, Freddie. What advice would you give to, say, a young trans person listening to this podcast, listening to your words about how to thrive in life? What would you say to them? Oh, how to thrive. <laughs> that's. Uh... I'm assuming you're thriving. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, it's the, uh, the reason I, I'm struggling a bit is because I'm immediately aware of how lucky I am, right? I, I am, I, I, I do thrive in some ways, um, but I would largely put that down to having an incredibly loving and supportive family and um, a small but very supportive and amazing group of friends. And for me, you know, I live I live where it feels good for me to live that means like for me that's my hometown and it's like by the sea and I do things that I want to do so I think just you know I would encourage people to kind of yeah create a life try to create a life that sort of nourishes you and in which you feel supported and if there are people in your life that aren't supporting you try to distance yourself from them you know because you do deserve support and you do deserve love so don't sort of undersell yourself and 
don't think that just because you're trans, you can't have the things you want. And if that's a family, that's especially true because chances are you might get told inaccurate stuff. You might be pressured into feeling like you shouldn't want certain things because you're trans. And in fact, you can want whatever you want. You, you know, we have regular desires like any other person. So, um, yeah, I, but it's hard to say all this when I know that so many trans people don't have supportive families and are in mm -hmm. really, really difficult and they may be facing homelessness or unemployment and bullying and all sorts of terror. You know, I haven't experienced the hardship that some um, trans and LGBT people have. So I find it hard to, I don't want to, be, be preaching to anyone but I just yeah. you know I would hope that people can hold on to their desires um I once actually heard a fellow trans dad called Tristan Reese say that and he this was in regard to family but I think it's probably applicable across the board is like hold on to your desire fiercely like hold on to it but hold lightly onto how you're going to get there <laughs> if that makes sense um, because the yeah, you might not get there in the way you expect, but you can get there. I think that's a great place to end there, Freddie. A good message for everyone, including um, a young trans person. Thank you so much for sharing your story, being vulnerable with us, and explaining your legal case as well. I wish you all the luck with that. Thank you very much. Thank you. The hearing. Thank you so much for listening and as ever we would love to hear your feedback like and subscribe and also if you've got any thoughts if you think about topics you want us to explore or maybe you want a guest to be interviewed and you're dying for them to be interviewed let us know we'd love to hear from you the hearing a legal podcast from thomson reuters to find out more go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.